Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we were looking for that kind of matchup so we could say that with certainty that New Zealand and its submerged territories around it were part of Gondwana in this location and these special mountain ranges in uh, both places have a, uh, a joint history. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast in this episode with Bruce Leyendike. Bruce is a world-class geologist, and after training as a marine scientist, he expanded his interests over four decades into the geology of California, New Zealand, and Antarctica. As he explains in this conversation, he evolved from studying the bottom of the ocean to the bottom of the world. In this episode, we talk about Bruce's background and how he accessed the world of geology, discuss his early inspirations, his work, and the global significance of geology, and why it's necessary to better understand how our planet is made and how it's changing. For me, the most fascinating part of this conversation was the topic of Zealandia, something I'd never come across before. In 1995, Bruce suggested that technically, and from a geological perspective, there should really be an eighth continent that includes the New Zealand microcontinent and several other pieces of continental crust. Since that time, New Zealand geologists have made the case that their nation sits atop the world's eighth continent. If this were to happen, which Bruce is certain it eventually will, it could have a major impact on the politics and economy of those regions. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Bruce Leyendike. All right, then, let's start at the start. Please, could you just introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Yeah, I'm Bruce Leyendike, and I am a retired now a professor of earth science and geophysics at University of California, the Santa Barbara campus. I spent a few decades of my uh, professional career doing research in uh, the Antarctic. And after I retired, which was uh, about over 10 years ago, I, I, f I did continue some projects, but I also started a new project, which was learning how to write a book <laughs> after writing uh, you know, over 150 research publications 
you have a you're you're treaded you're to write for scientists, but that's not the same as writing for you know people. So I had to uh, unlearn that, and I went back to uh, take classes in the local uh, community college with uh, some expert profs, learning how to write and going through multiple revisions of my book. My book is called uh, My- Mighty Badland, uh, A Perilous Expedition to Antarctica Reveals Clues to an Eighth Continent. And that's just out in the springtime. And it's my first my first book uh, for the for the popular world. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Ace. And I'm sure this answer would take a lot longer and if we were to do the full story, but how does one become... Um, a geology professor, I guess. How do you become interested and passionate about that world, and what was the path that led you there? Ah, uh, hmm, that's a good one. I I knew I always wanted to work in the outdoors, and uh, I was originally originally uh, had my idea to be a, a forester or a forest ranger, and I ha- happened to go on a field trip with a. Uh, with my uh, high school out to the local local college, San Diego State, and uh, the the class was held, the field trip was held in the building where the geology department was, and I wandered into their display area and saw all these people a little older than me having a great time camping, and then posters about going around the world and traveling and exploring, and I said, hey, that's what I want to do. So it's kind of accidentally I I got into geology and uh, undergraduate and graduate school at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I became a marine geologist to start with, and then a stint at uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And from there, I had an offer to go to um, join the department at UC Santa Barbara. So that's how I got into the geology career track as a professor and a researcher and being in Santa Barbara, believe it or not, was key for me getting into a research in Antarctica. But what was it about, I'm fascinated by this idea of like people picking something so specific to spend their life working on. And what was it about geophysics and that line of work specifically that pulled you in rather than, you know, forestry? Well, I, I think the, the uh, quantity of nature of, of the science attracted me in, in earth science. And the exciting notion of, of uh, travel and to uh, exotic locations. I mean, when you're doing geology, you're not going to a library somewhere, uh, except on occasion. But you're going into primitive areas often where you know, the outcrops are great and the geology is laid out in front of you. And uh, that, whole, that whole notion was, was, the, was the attractor, the exploration notion about, about this type of science. All, all scientists would call themselves explorers of some type, but in the natural world, geology and field biology are a couple of the, the lines which really get you into it. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's a conversation I'd like to have when we've done a bit more chat um, around exploration. But so tell me a little bit about the Antarctic side of things. How did that come about and how did you end up working down there? Yeah. Um, 
I was doing research in, in California, and uh, with uh, my colleagues in, in at Santa Barbara, a few of them had had uh, pretty strong links with uh, New Zealand geologists. And the reason is that California geology and New Zealand geology have some parallels. Uh, one being spectacular mountain ranges, another being a major fault that goes right through the territory. And so I, I teamed up with uh, colleagues who were connected there. And we started a project in New Zealand in the part of it called the Southern Alps, which I'm sure some of your listeners will know about. And uh, my teammate, who who was the colleague I was working with, Dave, Dave Kimbrough is his name, he had also uh, worked in specific mountain ranges in New Zealand uh, that I hadn't yet but we were just having a chat actually over dinner and we were we were remarking that it's it's uh, can be challenging to do new work in new zealand in the field because it rains a lot that's why it's green (laughs) and and uh the rocks are uh decomposed a lot because it rains a lot and uh they're also covered with lots of brush it's hard bushwhacking to get to them so uh, we were chatting about that and how hard he he was having a hard time working in this one mountain range, and he 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 remarked that it probably had a matchup in Antarctica this this mountain range, and uh, and he said you know if we went there, we wouldn't have rain, we wouldn't have a bunch of bushes, and uh, outcrops wouldn't be degraded. And then I said that's interesting, and and then yeah, New New Zealand was supposedly was once attached to. Uh, Antarctica in Gondwana, the supercontinent of the past. So he says, yeah, that's right. And then he says, uh, let's go to Antarctica. <laughs> I said, brilliant. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and then two years later, after we had multiple applications to get the funding and approval to do it with the U.S. program, that's what we did. We went to Antarctica to study these mountain ranges, which were matchups, supposedly matchups, to the ones in New Zealand that were so difficult to study. And, and as we, we, feed, we found out, there weren't any bushes in Antarctica. The rocks were clean and fresh because the glaciers were grinding them away. And um, it was a very unique, special place to do geology with everything exposed and, and uh, in good shape for us to take a close look. And what was it like when you first went down there? You know, I guess... Some people would say, oh, it was my boyhood dream to go and things like that. It doesn't sound like that was the case for you. You know, you had things happened incrementally. But how did it feel to go down there, I'm guessing in the 70s, when it was still fairly difficult to get there? Yeah, actually, the uh, first trip was the end of the 80s, was 89, 90. Yeah, and and I ended up going uh, nine times. So working in Antarctica is divided into ages, like the heroic age, Robert Scott and Shackleton, uh, and then followed by um, the beginning of the, the military exploration age with Richard Byrd and uh, the U.S. Navy. And then after that age, when you're getting into the 60s and 70s, we start the uh, kind of more of the academic age. And the age we're in right now is really the Internet age. So we were in between the military age and the internet age. So what it was like was very isolated. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have sat phones. Didn't have faxes. 
GPS. We didn't have any of that stuff. So it was kind of today things are way different. And and it was the, the military had 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 stood down. It, it, it still had a, a clear presence in assisting science, but it wasn't taking over doing all of it. The the actual inspiration, which clicked in this coincidence with, with the conversation David and I had in New Zealand, was um, my exposure to Shackleton. When I was in college, I had met some old uh, Navy salts who were talking about him, and and I was amazed by it. I hadn't heard the story, and they were shocked I was going to college and I had not heard about Shackleton. And so I heard stories from, from from them about Jacqueline. And then a couple of decades later, when I was in Santa Barbara, I read, a, read his book, South, Jacqueline's book. And um, that really took a hold of my, my psyche. Like, this is really on the edge by far. And I didn't see myself as, you know, repeating anything like that. But I think when Dave said to me, let's go to Antarctica, those two things clicked, what he said and what I had remembered and what had impressed me about Shackleton. And that put it in my head. It came together, and that's why I said immediately, yeah, let's do that. And what did you, I mean, this is like speaking to somebody who spent their career and life down there um, and has professor in their title, but what did we not know about Antarctica from a geological perspective? What were you aiming to discover and what did you ultimately discover? Right. Um, well, one thing that was apparent when we first started uh, our project was that almost all of Antarctica had been imaged through uh, like satellites and air, air photography. But as a geologist, not a lot of it had been visited. So there was a place to go where you, it wasn't like with Jacqueline and Scott, you didn't, you did not know what was over the horizon. You, you did know what was there, but you didn't know what it was. So uh, part of the answer to your question is just let's find out, just, just explore. But then specifically, because you don't get funding to do that sort of thing from the U.S. National Science Foundation, we were testing the hypothesis that the um, these ranges in, in New Zealand, where, where where Dave had been working, which are very special types of, of uh, geology, were matched with the ranges that were in New Zealand in a place called Marie Birdland, and it was kind of the experiment of trying to put together a torn newspaper, like. There's a sentence on one piece of the newspaper, then is in, you're looking for the other sentence that matches up with it. So we were looking for that kind of matchup so we could say that with cert certainty that New Zealand and its submerged territories around it were part of Gondwana in this location. And these special mountain ranges uh, in both places have a, uh, a joint history. So that was the hypothesis. Let's Let's test that these mountains are part of the same territory and were once joined in the supercontinent of Gondwana. I mean, that whole concept is completely fascinating. Um, so how do you, I mean, I don't mean to ask stupid questions, but how do you go about ascertaining whether or not something like that is true? You know, just the, the scale of the project in terms of 
the landmass, but also the um, the historical timeline. What do you actually do to understand whether or not this is true? Yeah, we had a team of uh, six people working in these mountain ranges, the Ford Ranges, of, uh, specifically of Marie Birdland. And we have two mountaineers, mountain guides, and four geologists, one of which is a, a graduate student. Uh, Christine is one of the few women who were exploring the continent at that time. So basically what what's done is to make a geologic map. Where, what are the rock types and where are they and how are they, how are they exposed? So it's a, it starts with the descriptive phase. And then you want to get some other basic things like um, how old are they? Do the ages match? And using And Dave's specialty was radiometric dating. Uh, uh, so that, And he had done the dating in New Zealand, so we can match that up with the dating we were going to do in um, in the Ford Ranges of Marie Birdland. And then there are other more uh, subtle types of, uh, of uh, experiments where you match up the chemistries of the, of the rocks from place to place. And then my job was um, to use a technique called uh, paleomagnetism. And paleomagnetism, in the short explanation is use the magnetism frozen into the rocks at the time they formed to tell you whether the, the terrain that you're working on has been moved or twisted. And uh, that was my, my job. And so the whole, th- all those pieces, when they're put together, come up with a story which you can go through and sort of read it like a history. And then you can answer, ask the question, is that similar to what we know about New Zealand or not? And, and that's what we did. Yeah, and I asked this question kind of with kindness and curiosity rather than out of difficulty, but why does this stuff matter to us? Why is it important that we know? Well, here I get asked that. It's a fair question. I ask that a lot. And the, the straightforward, simple answer is people want to know stuff. They just simply want to know things, and they spend <laughs> quite a bit of time, effort, and money finding stuff out. So that's for starters. Digging down deeper, there's the uh, processes of plate tectonics at the time. That was the before. This is before climate change. So plate tectonics is the big story. They wanted to know things like uh, how the pieces of continents moved and where they came from, and it absolutely does uh, impact resources, for example. The knowledge that we would come up with or geologists would come up with would be people who are interested in resources, you know, minerals, oil, water, and, and the like. So that's the long answer to that. That's, that's a fair question. I mean, why you spend all this money? Why go to all this trouble? You want to know stuff. Well, I think, it, yeah, and I think often... The answer to that question can start with as well, like, why do you want to know? That's a hard one, yeah. I actually haven't been asked that question before, so I'm, I'm not sure. I, um, I, I think maybe my interest in being outdoors has made me curious about what's the story here, what's the history, how, why do things look like they, they look? And yeah, I'll have to think harder about that. Yeah, and then... What did you, I mean, you've got your hypothesis, you've got your plan, you've got your method. What did you find? Well, we found that the rocks 
and the, the formations that we found in the, in the Ford Rangers did have parallels in geology of New Zealand, and they, they did match up. We also found that the mountains, mountain ranges formed before Gondwana split up, which was, that was surprising because we thought Gondwana was splitting up. That kind of dramatic event would create mountain ranges, but actually they were formed by something else, 20 million years before that, by a process called uh, subduction. Um, and then there's always, in any science project, there's always this surprising finding that wasn't even on your radar. And and the other thing we found out was about the ice sheet where we were traveling and living on. We found evidence, and this was not just in this trip, but in trips that followed up, that the ice had retreated in other words, withdrawn from where we were, quite some, quite a bit had disappeared, and and uh, colleagues that we got involved in the project were able to determine when and, and disappeared. You know, a few thousand years ago, as opposed to in the northern hemisphere where it disappeared maybe ten or twenty thousand years ago. So you know, just these these like accidental things you stumble over and weren't even thinking about until it was in front of you. It's such a, I find it so difficult to wrap my head around it. And I've tried so many times and maybe I'm just not predisposed to this kind of long-term thinking, but I, you know, I've had it um, said to me in the mountains in Scotland where I'm walking through and someone said, you know, the mountains here used to be higher than the Himalaya. I'm saying, well, that's not, that's not true, obviously, because that doesn't make any <laughs> they don't sense. Look like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're tiny. They're not really technically mountains, um, but it's true. Yeah. And I just can't wrap my head around it. And it, it it makes me think, well, okay, so the world used to look radically different and at some point will look radically different again. Right. I don't know if you're able to, you know, with your line of work and your profession, are you able to predict what's going to happen to the planet? Well, in terms of plate tectonics, I haven't done that. But some people have made those efforts and it's not a common exercise it's because you can make predictions like you say you know the atlantic ocean will get bigger because it's their continents are moving apart or, or parts of california will move north and, and to crunch into alaska because that's what's going on now so these are predictions that can't be tested <laughs> so that's not science if you make a, a, a hypothesis or a conjecture or a prediction it's science when you can test it. So yeah, it's poetic to think about these types of things happening. Like what's what's going to happen to the Mediterranean when Africa and Europe keep on colliding? Uh, is it going to like disappear? Well, it looks like it's going to, <laughs> but who knows when? And we, we can only only come up with a, a story about it and not test. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. Yeah. And so what I'm fascinated by this idea of why these things matter, and I'm just playing with it a little bit because I think they do matter. And then I just wonder when it comes to, um, is it Zealandia? Is that how you say it? Yeah, right. When it comes to a, this this concept of the eighth continent, Zealandia, are the the existing seven, as we currently label them, are those based on tectonic boundaries or political boundaries? And would the creation of an eighth continent matter in that respect? Yes, very much so. First of all, Zealandia has been in the news quite a bit recently and since about 2014. There's been some deep research going on to the, this concept of Zealandia, not by me. So I want to make sure that the listeners know that geologists other than me have been doing their heavy lifting in this topic. And it's mostly New Zealand geologists, folks I know, who are, you know, these guys are the A-team. So they know what they're doing. My role in this uh, was um, kind of a light bulb moment when I looked at the submarine uh, plateaus in the Southwest Pacific, and I looked at a, a reconstruction that other from folks in Texas had done. They put all of these pieces back against Marie Birdland, and, it's, and I said, "Hey, these are all continental pieces. Well, that's where they came from, and let's give them a name so it's not like." A hodgepodge and let's all knit it together and then that's what i did and then the new zealand geologist kind of either they were doing the same thing at the same time or light bulb went on in their heads and said yeah but why zealandia is continental pieces is because it came from a continent gondwana for starters where they are now you know we know that they're these uh, plateaus, which means they're about 100 or 200 meters deep, as opposed to thousands of meters deep like the ocean. And we know that they're older than the ocean that they sit on. We know that they're made of different rocks. They're made of continental rocks and not oceanic rocks. Uh, we know that they have sharp edges like they've been broken. Um, this is all due to like uh, detailed mapping that was taking place in the, in the 90s. Uh, we had a better vision of this. And um, so, you know, it's kind of the thing like if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. <laughs> so so that's, that's the kind of a thinking. So what matters about Zealandia, which if you put all the pieces back together, is about the size of India. So this is not trivial territory. We're talking about amount is significant. Um, is the, uh, something called the United Nations Law of the Sea, the Convention of the Law of the Sea. This says that if a nation um, has these submarine plateaus attached to it, and they can prove that, that they are attached to it, and they are continental, they're not oceanic features that have ended up there for some reason, then they have certain economic claims to that territory. So the, this notion of... New Zealand being the piece of the Zealandia that sticks up above the water, that means that New Zealand has economic rights to a, a huge territory that surrounds it by virtue of the law of the sea. So what they're going to do with this, uh, well, first of all, I have to get 
the UN to, uh, to say, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know where that is yet, actually. And then they have to do the exploration to see if there's uh, the economic benefits that they can take advantage of and whether they will. Other scientists uh, from New Zealand and just recently an international drilling team have uh, been investigating these plateaus around uh, the Southwest Pacific and testing the idea that, yeah, these are continental rocks, these are continental pieces, they did come from the, from the supercontinent, and New Zealand is part that pokes above sea level. So geologists, when they define a continent, we don't think a sea level is defining a continent. The sea level goes up and down. But the continental rocks and the oceanic rocks, their vertical positions are pretty fixed in comparison to what sea level is doing. So everyday people, we think of continents as what we can walk on and the beaches. We think, we think of that way. But geologists don't. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm happy to admit my naivety. I assumed they were political boundaries and based on islands, essentially, rather than um, anything to do with the ocean. I mean, maybe that's just me and maybe I'm stupid or maybe that's very, very common. I don't know. I think that's very common. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> um so it doesn't sound like a little project, you know, convincing the UN that this has value. I mean, that's a that's a task. Yeah, I'm not uh, plugged into what's going on with that, but obviously the Kiwis are very interested in this. Do you think it will happen eventually? I do because it's the science is, the science is pretty solid, so it will. I mean, <laughs> maybe this is getting slightly too political, but. In your experience and opinion, though, does the science being solid directly correlate with good decision-making internationally? Well, I'll give you an example that shows how science has really been politically important in terms of peace and cooperation, and that's Antarctica and the Antarctic Treaty, which came into being in around 1961. Uh, Antarctica has no sovereign territory right now. So that's, that's a continent the size of Europe and a good chunk of Asia or U.S. and Mexico put together. So that's a, a huge territory that has no recognized sovereignty, no claim. It, the claims exist, but the treaty sub, uh, suspended them. And the reason the, these were suspended by treaty is because of the science that was being done there, because the science that was being done there was international. The teams were international. And there was a lot of cooperation. This is even during the Cold War, this was going on. And that's what uh, gave rise to the Antarctic Treaty. So here's an example to answer your question. You know, the, the, the science kicked off a, a political resolution. And, and Sure, you can argue that, why, who wants to live in Antarctica? <laughs> you, know, right? you can say that. Well, I don't know. I think probably if you could, you would. But um, And there are overlapping claims of pieces of Antarctica, like the UK has claims that overlap with Argentina and with Chile and the, and the peninsula area. All of those are put on hold. All of those are, are in suspension by the treaty. But maybe you could talk a little bit about this for us because when are they put on hold until and what's potentially going to happen? Yeah, the treaty is 
And uh, on the top of my head, I don't have precise answers, but it's important that the treaty is renewed. It, it, it's for a specific period of time, and it does get renewed. And I don't know when the next renewal is up, but I do know that it being in force has done more than suspend the uh, political claims. It has also engendered um, environmental laws that are agreed to, uh, conservation laws, uh, especially the Southern Ocean around around the continent. So all these dozens of nations that have signed it now, I'll have skin in the game to keep this working because of the, the cooperation they've established and because of the science that results. So I would be surprised if it didn't. I can't imagine why it would not be renewed. Like, for instance, uh, exploitation of minerals is suspended. So the treaty would be renewed to keep that in force. I mean, that's one thing I was just about to ask you, which you've kind of started to answer already, is do you think it will be renewed? Well, you're saying yes. And my question, I guess, is what are the threats to renewal? Because if that continent is full of resources and currently the treaty says we can't touch them, I I love the idea of that continent not being exploited and people not drilling or digging. But is that realistic in a changing world that's going to start realizing it's running out of stuff? That's a good question, of course. And there might be motivators to do what you're, what you're pointing out. But it's, it's simply not trivial to work in any scale in Antarctica. Sure, the Arctic has been exploited and, and there's been drilling up there. I actually haven't been very deep into the Arctic, but the notion of drilling and mining in, in Antarctica, the logistics of it would be phenomenal. Just, uh, just, I, I can't imagine how they'd be done. For for one thing, there's no running water, so <laughs> you need that after you've jumped all the other hurdles. So, so it's the challenges, the industrial challenges would be enormous. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the scale of the um, Antarctic Survey operations. I mean, I'm much more familiar with the British Antarctic Survey than the American Antarctic Program, but looking at what they do with their, I mean, I'm sure some people who are listening have seen this, but some haven't, is, you know, get the boat right up to the edge and then these huge cranes are transferring things up vertically onto these um, kind of icy plateaus. I mean, that in and of itself is just crazy. But then doing that on an industrial scale for drilling would be a whole different thing. So what's your view on, um, and I use this word very specifically, but Antarctic exploration at the moment. And just to pepper that with some context, I think basically anybody who goes down to Antarctica is an explorer in the media's eye. Anybody who does any form of athletic journey, um, expedition, scientist, etc., they're all explorers. What do you actually think is the current state of Antarctic exploration and do you think it's in safe hands? Well, I know... This is true, that the pandemic really upset the apple cart. It was hoped that with all of the screenings and, and the environment of Antarctica itself, that the pandemic wouldn't penetrate, but it did. And even if it didn't, the logistics and the supplies and everything else that was conducted from exterior to the Antarctic were shut down. So that really knocked it off on the rails. The U.S. Program, I can tell you what's happening 
now in the U.S. program is that the uh, pandemic coincided with a renovation and building phase, rehabbing and building in McMurdo Station and South Pole Station. So that had to get stopped also. And the, the idea was that the science and the building could be blended and everything would march off in lockstep and be would function. That didn't happen. So now what's going on is this most of the U.S. anyway, uh, science science projects, about half of them have been in suspension, waiting for all this construction to finish, which was put on hold because of the pandemic, and et cetera, et cetera. So we're in a in a you know, glitch phase right now, recovering from the from the pandemic. Now, what do I predict will happen once we get everything smoothed over? I think that it's pretty solid in Europe and in, even in North America, that climate change, global heating, I don't call it global warming anymore, global, global heating is and, and climate crises are becoming more in front of us and uh, more in the public uh, consciousness. And Antarctica is a place where we can learn more about that and learn what to do next. So I expect, and matter of fact, this has happened. Geology, for example, uh, my field. Geology is still being done in, in, in the Antarctic by U.S. program, but it has had this different direction where it, it's connected to glaci glaciology, which wasn't so when I was doing plate tectonics research. So I think the science activities will be and they are and have been more aimed towards climate issues. And, and that's going to continue, and I think that's going to stay strong uh, once we get dig ourselves out of the pandemic ditch. Do you think that's right? Because I, I really wanted to talk to you about exploration and discovery from your perspective. And obviously, well, I say obviously, I think it's critical to both you and I from what you're saying and definitely what I believe that we should be doing climate-focused research and we should be looking to understand what's going to happen so we can mitigate the impacts of it but also understand it better. But is it right to solely focus on that? And should we look at you know other things too, things we were looking at before we realised what was happening? Yeah, that's that's a fair question. I didn't want to give the impression that everything is retreaded. It's, it's, that's not so. There's still work like I've done and was was involved in and it's just this and it won't disappear it's just the scale of it there's a smaller piece of the pie that's involved in the kind of work i was doing and that doesn't mean that people have been put out of work that means they've retreaded and changed their directions and as i as i mentioned working on glacial geology glacial history like for instance the story i told earlier in the interview where we discovered the ice sheet retreat by accident. Well, some of that research is going to be done on purpose instead of by accident. So, no, it wouldn't be right. We've always been shown to have made a mistake when we uh, kind of like wipe the slate clean and just focus on one agenda and ignore other agendas. That's That's always been a problem. And there's always pressure to do it. But I don't predict that. No. Okay. Well, that's reassuring in some senses. Um, and what do you think are the most important things for us to be exploring, in inverted commas, looking at 
in Antarctica and the surrounding area that we're not looking at right now or not able to look at? I think that I would say it a little bit differently. I think the stability of the ice sheets is is, is uh, key. Of course, uh, sea level is probably going to be the thing that is most difficult to adapt to sea level rise. And that takes enormous amounts of data, enormous amounts of field research in, in all around the continent. And that's not happening now because the, scaling that up would be extremely challenging. But I think that's where that's where it's going. Right now, we have uh, a strong focus in Western Antarctica. There's the Thwaites Glacier Project, which the UK is is driving most of it. You may you may know about it. There are some projects that I'm not very familiar with on, in East Antarctica that are that have been going on. There's the Glacial Lakes Project, which um, some UK scientists have been leading, and Americans are involved. They're French. The Russians involves the kind of the, the 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 ice cycle and explains how the ice sheet stability is controlled by the bed underneath the ice sheet itself. So all the experiments are being done, and when you put them on a map and and the locations are where they're being done, you're not covering a lot of territory. They're doing experiment. There's this works being done. In, one location in, in, in great depth, but there's a lot left that needs to be done. And, and in some places that are extremely difficult to work and get to. So I think the portfolio of what what's left to do is pretty large and that it's all involved in, like you say, how we're going to adapt to the, the new world, what we can predict in the, in the short term. So there's huge amounts of, of work to do. Yeah. I often think about this quote with Antarctica. You know, people often say the golden age of exploration is dead. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I've heard that one. It lacks a little imagination, in my opinion. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ace, well, um, yeah, I, I always ask people the same two questions at the end of every conversation. Um, and I'm going to ask them to you now. Um, I have a kind of a good idea of where we might go with these, given the topics and the themes. But the first is what scares you. I think I think what scares me is something you brought up. The question you asked is, what happens if the Antarctic Treaty doesn't get renewed? That's that's possible, and that's disastrous. And considering what we're facing as a planet, as a culture, so I'm hoping that's remote possibility. I'm hoping that. But since you asked that question, uh, and you and you did ask what would happen if it didn't get renewed, yeah, I kind of felt that when you asked that, like, oh, uh -oh no, no. <laughs> well, we've got, I think we've got 25 years or something like that. I think it's 48 and it gets renewed. I think, unfortunately, I'm, I'm 34, so it'll be my generation who are going to make the decision. So, you know, right. come on us. We can do it. <laughs> um, my last question is what brings you hope? What brings me hope is the culture of science. Like, for example, just the collaborative culture of it and the language of it. The A lot of people recognize that music and art have connections, create connections amongst people. That's many obvious examples. But when you go to an international conference, and I've been to a lot of them, and you see people uh, talking about the same topics, you sort of get struck by this this common 
truth that people share. And uh, there's no holding back for uh, collaborating and congratulating or criticizing. Everybody is kind of speaking this language. And I'll give you something that really struck me was the uh, space station, which right now is manned by uh, Russians and Americans. Look at that. I mean, really, these people are living in, you know, a, a large tin can for, for, for months on end doing science experiments, and that's what keeps them together. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't want to be, um, well, I don't want to romanticize disaster. But I think that, and I don't. This is a question in a sense. Question is a statement, but I think that facing a disaster, you know, it often brings people together in lots of senses. Particularly something like war, particularly natural disaster. This is an odd hope to have, but my hope is that as climate change starts to impact the planet, that we all start to get on with each other a little bit more and work towards a common solution. And I, if I were a betting man, I suspect that might happen. Because it will have to. I think that's a good perspective, yeah. I haven't thought that way, but absolutely right. Yeah, the, the seawalls will have to be built from country to country to mitigate what's happening, yeah, right. Yeah, cool. Well, it's kind of cheery, but kind of not cheery, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we'll leave it there. It's real, but um, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks, Bruce. Terrific. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience.